you have no idea how happy I am to be here. Because I know that you really want to be effective in this area of the world. Not only to see people come to faith, but to see them disciple so they won't fall away from the faith. I'd like to begin this morning by sharing with you a little of my own journey, because that will help you to see why we're doing what we are. I became a Christian when I was very young, largely through a Sunday school teacher who was filled with the love of God. And she put that love in me, without a doubt. And during my teenage years, I was discipled by an elder in our church called John Woodward for seven years. He taught me what I needed to know from the Bible. He showed me through his own example how to be more like Jesus in my character. And he trained me to lead others to Christ and how to establish them in the Christian faith. I will be eternally grateful to him. Because if it were not for him, I would not be standing before you this morning. In my late teenage years and early adult years, I became very busy as a Christian. I worked in the public service during the day, but evenings and weekends were spent in serving the church and people. I was busy, very busy, too busy, with endless meetings and programs to meet the needs of people. But, and I noticed, though, although men and women and young people were becoming Christians and coming to church and youth group, the church itself was not growing. The reality was just as many were leaving as were coming into the church. I was becoming increasingly restless and began to pray with greater intensity that God would guide me in what to do about this situation. Around this time, I met a man called Don who had become a Christian in New Zealand through a group called The Navigators. And one of their men called Joe Simmons had spent several months with Don and had established him in his Christian faith. As a result, he was not only established but he could now do with others what Joe had done with him. Don had moved to Hobart and we became good friends quite quickly. But Don could see that I was very busy, too busy, and he encouraged me to focus on a few young men and help them grow and then see what God would do with them. Deep inside, his advice rang true. So I prayed, I don't know why my throat today is very dry. Deep within me, his advice rang true. So I prayed that if this was the way I should go, that the Lord would give me five young men I could help in their Christian faith. That was October 1973, 50 years ago. Within 48 hours of my prayer, Five Christian university students knocked at my door independently of each other. And they said to me, we're not growing. John, can you help us to grow? So I started to meet with them individually. The Lord had answered my prayer. And I started to meet with them on a weekly basis 
and taught them what I knew. Interesting so, two of the five led another student to the Lord within the first two weeks, which was a very encouraging start. Four months later, in January of 1974, Don, who had then moved to Canberra, invited me to go to the Navigator Conference in Canberra, to which I was very keen to go. At the conference, there were about 300 mostly new Christians who attended, and they were inspiring. Many, although young Christians themselves, were discipling even newer Christians, what they themselves had learnt from the person who had discipled them. On the third night of the conference, I was in my room because the conference was at a university. I was weeping on my knees and I said, God, when I look at these people, I don't even know what I'm doing. And then the Lord spoke to me. I don't say that easily. He spoke to me and he said, turn to Isaiah 43. Now I had no idea what was in Isaiah 43. I'd already been to Bible school. We so-called studied Isaiah. It was my second worst mark out of 54 exams. And I certainly had no idea what was in Isaiah 54. And this is the promise that he gave me. Since you are precious and honoured in my sight, and because I love you, I will give you men in exchange for your life and people in exchange for your life. Do not be afraid, for I am with you. I will bring your children from the east and gather you from the west. I will say to the north, give them up, and to the south, do not hold back. The Lord answered my prayer by giving me the five young men, and now he confirmed it from his word that I was on the right track. After the conference, I framed the promise on my office wall at home to remind me to stay with the vision that the Lord had given me. And so for the last 50 years, I have given my life primarily to discipling a few men at a time, some for months, some for years, and it's just been absolutely wonderful. Now, why do we need to establish new Christians properly? It's because the church in Australia can do a lot better than we are currently doing. Around 90% of people in the Western world who make a profession of faith don't go on with it in the longer term. Now just imagine this, a maternity hospital and 10% of all the babies die. There'd be an outcry. If it was 50%, they'd close the hospital. Well, why is it that the church would allow so many people to fall away who make a profession of faith? I was in South Africa not that long ago and I had an opportunity to speak to Christian leaders from 10 countries, just a small group. But at the end of it, every one of them said, John, this is the number one major need in our country. And they came from America and Europe, Africa, there's such a strong need to stop this dropout rate. Now, why is there such a high dropout rate from the Christian faith? I believe there are primarily two reasons. The first one is that many people who make a profession of faith never become Christians in the first place. 
They were deceived into believing that they were right with God. Frequently because they heard a gospel that was false or particularly incomplete. Where particularly the need for repentance, an essential ingredient of the message was never even mentioned. Let alone emphasised. Now let me give you an example of that. Because this is very common around the world. I was on a cruise ship in the Bahamas several years ago. The ship was full of Americans. Every night I sat with a different group of Americans and I wanted to see where they were spiritually. Every single person, every single night happened to be a church person. And yet when I shared the gospel with them, not one had heard the gospel before. And there are so many people like this now. They think they're Christians, but they are deceived. Secondly, men and women walk away from their Christian faith because they are not discipled properly. So that when issues come, difficulties, someone offends them in the church, or circumstances occur for which they blame God, they have unanswered questions or when they don't understand the reason for something happening, they just slip quietly away. And because people are coming through the new church all the time, no one even notices. You see, the last words that Jesus Christ spoke to his disciples before returning to heaven were his lasting words. They were not only meant for the early disciples, but for all of those, including us, who would become Christians in the future. The mission would stand until Jesus returned. You see, most, if not all of us, know the words of Jesus found in Matthew 28. But how many of us really take them to heart? Because Jesus is still saying today, I have been given sorry. I have been given all authority in heaven and on earth. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Teach these new disciples to obey all the commands I've given you, and be sure of this: I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Now please notice that what has been given to us by Jesus Christ is not a great idea or a great suggestion, but rather it's the great commission or the great commandment given to us by the Son of God himself. We're under orders from the one who purchased us with his blood when he died on the cross to pay for our sins. But what are we told to make what does the mature disciple look like? So we will know when we've made one. An effective disciple of Jesus will have three main characteristics. Firstly, they will know what Jesus taught and live their lives according to his teaching. Secondly, they will be developing a Christ-like character. And thirdly, they will have developed ministry skills so they can serve Christ effectively. In other words, a mature disciple needs to know certain things, needs to be certain things, 
and needs to do certain things to fulfill the mission. When Jack, our fourth great-grandchild, was born, we noticed that he was complete. He had ten fingers and ten toes. He had vocal cords that could be heard in the next street. And everything was present and in the right place. But everything was not yet developed. He still needed the help of his parents if he was to grow into maturity and one day have children of his own. So far his parents are doing a great job. And Jack today is in good shape and is a great delight to me personally. When I visit him or he visits us, he sometimes calls out to me, chase me, old pa. And only those with grandchildren or great-grandchildren understand what those words mean. Catch me, Opa. You see, one of the first sermons that I preached was in the church where I grew up, based on a passage from Acts chapter 20, verses 20 to 28. But before I was about to speak, one of the elders of the church gave the announcements of the week. And he mentioned that during the preceding week, there'd been a youth camp and several youths had given their lives to Christ. And he said that we need to commit them to God for his protection and care. And so he did that before handing over to me. Now listen to me very carefully here because what I'm about to say can be easily misunderstood. But, but firstly, let's read those verses in Acts chapter 20. Words that Paul gave to the Ephesian elders. Guard yourselves and God's people. Feed and shepherd God's flock, his church. Purchased with his own blood over which the Holy Spirit has appointed you as elders. I know that false teachers like vicious wolves will come in among you. After I leave, not sparing the flock, even some men from your own group will rise up and distort the truth in order to draw a following, watch out. Then he went on to say, remember the three years I was with you, my constant watch and care over you, night and day, and my many tears for you, and now I entrust you to God and the message of his grace that is able to build you up and give you an inheritance with all those he has set apart for himself. Paul had sent a message to Ephesus, asking the elders of the Ephesian church to meet him at Miletus as he was passing through there by ship and he desired to see them. And after telling them that most likely he would never see them again, he warned them strongly that false teachers like vicious wolves would come and try to destroy the church. So Paul urged the elders to guard watchfully over the new Christians and teach them accurately and thoroughly what they needed to know so they would be protected from false teachers. It was their responsibility as the Holy Spirit had appointed them to the position they held. But then Paul committed the elders to God. He was releasing them into God's care and protection. The Holy Spirit of God and the Word of God would direct them and teach them what they needed to know and do. You see, Paul was no longer 
responsible for the elders because he had previously spent three years in Ephesus discipling them. They no longer needed him. They were now mature and effective elders. Now the principle in this passage is this, which I might say contradicted what that elder said. It is our responsibility to disciple new Christians until they are mature enough to walk with God themselves. We simply don't hand them over to God. God hands them over to us. Then and only then can we commit them to God. The Holy Spirit and the Word of God will then keep them on the right path. My great-grandson Jack again turned six yesterday. When I next talked to Casey, his mother, about Jack, do you think that she will say this to me? Yesterday, John, I had a good talk to Jack, and this is what I told him. Jack, today is your birthday. You are now six years old. From today, when you're hungry, there's food in the fridge. The instruction book for the washing machine is in the drawer. Read the manual and wash your clothes yourself. If I'm not home, when you get home from school, you have my phone number if you want to phone me. Although Jack is a very bright little boy, and I love him dearly, and Casey has taught him a lot, Jack is not ready to face the world. This would take several more years and a lot of work by his parents. I hear so often from church leaders that they have a six or eight week program to disciple new Christians. When they have done the course, the new Christian can go into a home group and listen to the sermons on Sunday and they'll be okay. May I suggest to you this is totally insufficient. The short courses are not bad. In fact, they're usually very good. But they are meant only to be an entree before the main meal, to get the new Christians started in their Christian lives. To properly establish a new Christian takes on average sometimes more, but it takes about a year depending on their background, their desire to grow and the help they receive from us. Tragically, too, many, too few Christians receive the help they need. And it should not surprise us when so many walk away from the Christian faith and walk away so easily. So how can we establish new Christians so they not only walk with God for the rest of their lives, but so they can also do the same with others? Now, I'd like to give you two illustrations which I think make disciple-making very simple. Many years ago... There was a major flood in Hobart and the shops were underwater. And my mother at the time used to knit and she really used to enjoy that. And she went into town and she found a box of wool like that, a really huge box, with dozens and dozens and dozens of skeins of wool. And when I came home from school on the night that she got the box, she was sitting at the table untangling it. Now, she didn't go like this. She went like this. And then she got another one. 
picture went like this. And together, my mother and I untangled this immense mess. Now, when a person becomes a Christian, their lives are a lot like that. They are a mixture of right and wrong thinking, right and wrong attitudes, good and bad behaviour. And imagine if the Lord said to us, right, I'm going to work on 275 things with you. We would become overwhelmed. But the key to discipling is very simply this. You take one thing at a time and you help the person deal with that issue. And as you deal with one in your hand will come less and less until their lives are really conformed to the life of Christ. But we need another one. We don't just do it, talk to them about it, and it's over. Everything has to be built into the life of the Christian. Now, I want to give you two examples of how that can be done. One of the things that we all know, there are so many people in our churches who are not sure if they're saved. I was asked to one day speak in a church, and before the church service, I went to the kitchen to get a glass of water. And in their back room was a photo of a lady, because they had just celebrated the fact that she was the foundation member of the church. She would have been about 65 years of age at the time. After I finished the message, she came up to see me and I said, oh, I saw your photo in the back. And she said to me, John, but I still don't know if I'm a Christian. Now, there are so many people like that that are not sure. And so whether it's a person like that or whether they are recent in the faith or whether they've been Christians a long time, I always start with this one thing how you know that you are a Christian, without doubt. Now, in building that brick into the person, when I look at that topic, and I might deal with them just on that area for a month, this is what I want them to be able to repeat back to me, not from their heads, but from their hearts. And let me just read it to you. I know they will say to me that I am a Christian for four reasons. Firstly, because God wants me to know that I am a Christian. It is not presumption for me to say I'm right with God. I'm meant to know. And based on 1 John 5.13, where John the Apostle wrote, These things have written unto you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. Number two, I have fulfilled the conditions that I needed to do to become a Christian. I've turned my back on sin. I've repented of it and put my trust in what Jesus did for me on the cross to save me. And they share those verses with me. Number three, the spirit of God who now lives in me confirms to me that I am a Christian. I have the inner assurance, I just know it. And fourthly, my life has changed. I have a new attitude towards sin and God. Before my attitude is, I love my sin, as long as I don't get caught. And before I would say to God, keep away. I don't want you. But now I just welcome God into my life. That's how I know that they are a Christian. 
I never tell a person that they are Christians. I wait until they tell me. When they know by revelation that they are now sons and daughters of God. Number two, a new Christian needs to be able to gain what they need from the Bible for themselves. When I was young, my father had a chain of, of supermarkets, but in reality I could starve to death. My heavenly father has spiritual food available for his children that is found in the Bible. But many don't know how to gain benefit and are totally dependent on the pastor to feed them. Now I know a lady very well. She has been a Christian for 45 years. And she said to me recently, I need to go to church on Sunday to be fed by my pastor. I think that is very tragic. Now we, we go to church on Sunday to hear from our, our pastors. But we're not dependent on it. Let me illustrate what I mean. When I was a boy, my mother fed me. But when I left home and was married, the family would come together at my parents' home for Sunday lunch. It was a wonderful time. But if I couldn't go one Sunday, I didn't starve to death. And so that's how we need to see Sunday. Because we need to be in the Bible ourselves. So these are some of the things that I would do with a new convert. Firstly, make sure they have a version of the Bible they can understand. That's why I use the New Living Translation. I show them how to find their way around the Bible by using the index and explaining the chapter and verse system. I give them a basic Bible outline of the Bible so they see how it fits together. I put the Bible on their phone and encourage them to take notes in the sermons in church. I show them where to start reading the Bible. If a person says to a new Christian, read your Bible, they'll begin in Genesis. The first thing that you'll have to deal with is evolution. It's better to get them started in the book of Mark or the book of John. Read the Bible with them until they are comfortable reading on their own and can find their way around the Bible. Show the different methods in how to study the Bible as this will deepen their understanding of the Bible. Show them how to memorise the verse and the benefit of scripture memory. Explain the difference between Eastern meditation and Bible meditation. And show them how to apply what they read in the Bible. Does this sound like a lot of work? Yeah? It is. But it is wonderful and I'll show you why in a moment. In this life... When you do this, the new Christian is much more likely to stand strongly as a Christian for the rest of their lives. And they will also have the ability to do with others what you have done with them, making you a spiritual grandparent. Now, I'd like to just share with you two examples, not as a boast, but to let you see that it's worth spending years with a person. 
in the last month or two, the Lord is suddenly giving me an increasing amount of encouragement from my life. The first boy that I counselled was before these, these five. It was in 1966. I led a 14-year-old boy to the Lord and started to disciple him. Maybe not in the way I would do it now, but, but one of the things that he found, his father particularly was very much against him, particularly in relationship to his Christian faith. And so Spencer had to read his Bible in the bathroom or in the toilet or in his bedroom at night, the same with prayer. So he had a very hard time. I spent about three years with him in the context he came into our church as well. Now that was 58 years ago. I hadn't seen him for 45 years at least. But two weeks ago, I suddenly came across him. And I talked to him. And this man now of 70 years of age is walking with God. And the good news is, he said, before my father died, I led him to Christ. And he said, I led him to Christ one day. And I went back the next day and my father hugged me. First time in my life. It showed that his father was genuinely converted and his mother and so many others. You see, because I spent so many years with him, discipling him, he was a labourer. The second man I want to tell you about, I met him two weeks ago. First time in 45 years. He's been in full-time ministry for 40 years. He has led I don't know how many people to the Lord. See, you've got a choice. You may lead individuals to Christ occasionally, but when you make disciples, you establish them. They become like your children and your grandchildren and your great-grandchildren. And then in the next life, when you stand before Jesus at the judgment seat of Christ, you'll be able to say that what you did, what he told you to do, you will receive the well done, the good and faithful servant. Now I recognise that Jesus gave the great commission to the 11 disciples as a group because many people have input into the life of a growing Christian. But I've found unless a specific person takes responsibility for the new Christian, they will flounder around maybe for years. And some of you know that is true through your own experience. Now what I'd like to do now is to conclude and I want you to imagine this scene. The pastor of a church stands up before a congregation and tells them that a new church is to be planted in a town where there isn't currently a church. He asks those who are willing to say publicly on the following Sunday what they are prepared to do to make the, a church plant a success. On the following Sunday, one by one, members of the congregation stand up and announce what they are prepared to do. Jim, I'll greet them at the door. Susan, I'll prepare the bulletin for them so they know what's going on. 
Peter, I'll play great music for them so they can worship. Anna, I'll cook food for them when we have fellowship lunches. Simon, I'll mow the lawn so the place looks nice. Karen, I'll handle the money and be sure the bills are paid. Greg, I'll clean the building so they have a comfortable place to meet. Josie, I'll organise a community support group to help the needy. Ken, I'll give money so others can do the work. After everyone has offered their contribution, there's a loud cheer. They're ready to plant a new church. Everyone's very happy. But then a quiet voice from the back of the room asks a penetrating question. If we expect to see local people become Christians, who will disciple them? The room suddenly goes deathly silence and some people lower their heads. They realise everything for which they have volunteered is good and necessary, but not the main game. They remember hearing a speaker urging them to be a disciple-making church and at the time thinking that it needed to be done. But somehow it never quite happened. Against silence fills the air. Then the pastor, after a few minutes, stands up and asks the question, is there anyone here who knows how to effectively make disciples and are willing to do it? If there is, would you stand up and say, I can and I will? Now that is, that is, that is my message to you today. Why should God give you babies if you won't look after them? And that's why I've spent the last 50 years at least just making, helping churches to see that if we will do that, it will motivate God, if I can say those words, to bring us revival when there will be hundreds of people coming to faith because he knows the babies won't die. Now in the back is my book which I wrote on disciple making. And I invite you, if you don't already have it, to help yourself to one. But I would make one request. Your pastor and I have talked about this. For those of you that are serious about this, we would like to meet you in two weeks' time. Pastor here, at three in the afternoon, for those of you that have read the book, it's very easy to read, it won't take long. And as you read it, put down comments and questions and I'd like to be there for you to answer them and to help you as much as I can. This is all I do. I will be available for you as long as you like because I have nothing else to do. <laughs> Amen? Amen? So please... I plead with you, it's worthwhile, it's wonderful. I spoke to a pastor recently, he was also a good friend of mine, he retired, and he said, uh, I have preached a thousand sermons at least, probably more, but I can't see what I've done. When you make disciples properly, and you begin to see the children that come from them, you will see what you've done and be encouraged by them. 
One final illustration, okay? My great uncle made a chart, a family chart, a chart that looks like that, dating back hundreds of years. Now on the bottom is a red line. And next to it are four black lines. Now the red line is me because I could not have children. I have spiritual children, but I could not have a, a child of my own body. So my physical line in history was gone. My brothers and sisters have kids and grandkids, nothing. Now you can imagine as a, as a whatever, <laughs> How disappointing that is for couples when they can't have children. I don't want you to be disappointed when you stand before Jesus that you will have no children. That's pretty heavy, isn't it? Because I, I tell you, as I said before, I love my great-grandson. I know what it means when he says, chase me, Opa. I never had that because I never had kids. So God bless you. May I just pray for you? Our Father and our God, Lord, your word says that if we abide in you, we will bear much fruit. And Lord, I pray for this beautiful congregation of people. Lord, I can see there's great heart for God and heart for people. And Lord, I pray that they will become fruitful and lead many others to Christ as well. And Lord, may they be generations of parents so they become spiritual grandparents and great-grandparents. And Lord, we will, we will bless you and honour you. And Lord, and then when we decide to become disciple-makers, then you will give us more babies. And that's why, Lord, we pray this church would explode with spiritual babies who will grow into maturity. And we thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name, for his name to be magnified. Amen.